You're listening to the Roanoke Valley Church Podcast. Awesome. Well, we have been studying out the book of Acts as a church, both in the New River Valley and here in Roanoke Valley. And we'll be in Acts chapter 6 today and into chapter 7. Uh, the title of my lesson this morning is Check Your Neck. <laughs> Check Your Neck. What? We're going to be looking at Stephen's great speech here to the Sanhedrin, and it's over 50 verses long. Um, so I'm going to try to. Uh, basically just condense it a little bit, a little uh, Cliff Notes version for you, and then zero in on some of the teaching points of it and, and some points for us. So it is over 50 verses, and at the end of it, he gets stoned with stones. I guess we have to make that clarification in Virginia now. No, we're not worried about the New River Valley. They are more progressive down there, but not that much. Not as a church, just the area. All right, I gotta stop talking to the scriptures. I was telling a sister earlier this morning that without my wife, um, I'd have a shorter life for sure. But then also, what I say, she's she kind of rings me in. So when she's serving in kids' kingdom, there's no one up here kind of like giving me the look, like move on, uh, don't say that. You ran that by me, and I said no, don't do it. I need a new one. Rolando, can you help me out? Ben? Where are you, Ben? My, my fellow? There we are. Okay. Help me out. Okay. Um, so the background of all this text in Acts chapter 6 is at this point, uh, Stephen has been seized. Uh, Stephen's been seized, and at that point, he's before what is known as the Sanhedrin in their, in their temple courts, in their kind of their courtroom uh, that was outside the temple. And we know that Stephen was chosen just prior to this by the apostles to serve in a role of disseminating food to the widows who were being overlooked in that daily distribution. And he was, again, a man full of faith and of spirit, those qualifications into that ministry. So it's not a, a domesticated role. It's not a menial task. It's not something that was beneath the apostles. Rolando taught on that last, last Sunday that this isn't some busboy job. This is a spiritual job in the ministry of disseminating food and taking care of the saints is a very, very big task. And one that uh, should not be uh, a frivolous one that's kind of met with unresponsible people. You want people that have a kingdom view taking care of people. Amen. So that's who Stephen was. Uh, so whether you're setting up chairs or whatever it may be, that is a vital part to the kingdom of God and, ha and having God uh, here with us in, in this earth. Amen? So Stephen was seized. And what I believe about that is that he was disseminating that food. He was taking care of people. He was around the temple. He was doing all the things that if you look in your Old Testament, that's actually what priests do. Priests are disseminating food. They're taking care of people. They're actually rationing out uh, food that people have brought to the temple in order to give it out to God's people. So at the end of, uh, of, of that section of text, it describes that many priests even became faithful to the gospel. You know why that might be? Is that Stephen's doing the same thing the priests were doing, and the priests are noticing it. And some of them are like, whoa, why are you doing this when you're not in this lineage of priests? And I believe Stephen had a chance to share a little bit about Jesus prior to this great speech before the Sanhedrin. So priests, religious men who were devoted to the temple and doing those same things, 
saw Stephen's heart and motivation, repented, and became disciples of Jesus. Come on. All right? That's right. But in this story, some priests didn't like what Stephen was doing. So there's a response of humility and there's a response of pride. And we see that in this text with the Sanhedrin. So we know that Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew, which means he, he grew up in the Roman colonies. He spoke Greek, he didn't speak Aramaic. Uh, and you can tell that even with some of the references to the Old Testament in his speech, in his sermon, they're actually Greek references. They're, they're Septuagint stuff. So he's, he's, uh, he's all in, in, in the Greek uh, understanding, which is really cool. So he's got some Greek Bible quotations here. If you need to know more about that, uh, see our resident scholar uh, in Ben Hutchins. I'm not kidding. I'm not just trying to blow smoke. He really is. I'm so proud of him. Uh, but let's, let's, let's get on with uh, the scriptures. Amen? <laughs> Finally, you say. Uh, verse 8. And we're going to be hopping around here a little bit. So keep your finger at the ready. It says there, And Stephen, now described as full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, oh, whatever, okay. And the Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. So in your mind's eye, get this movie rolling. This is them bringing them into their little courtroom that's outside of the temple. And I don't have a slide behind me, obviously, but you got to picture this in your mind's eye. It's now Stephen in front of the Sanhedrin, these 70 el elders and, and the Sanhedrin there, and then also scribes in their little courtroom. And this is, if you understand the, the biblical history here, these are like, you know, if you had playing cards of your favorite athletes, these are Stephen's like heroes that he's standing before. It's like Zach Rice going to M&T Stadium at Baltimore, and instead of his biggest heroes saying, thanks, welcome to Baltimore, they're grilling him about what he does in life. They're like, you're my heroes. And I, this is how I, pan, I thought this was going to go when I finally my, meet my heroes. I didn't think it would go down like this. But Stephen's seeing it, like, there's the high priest. Like, that's the guy, that's the guy I grew up learning from and hearing about. And now I'm here face to face with him. And his teeth are out. And he's snarling at me. And he doesn't like what I'm doing. You know, a side point here is how many of us would kind of just move, move to the, the general hero of like, oh, these guys are some type of authority and hero in my life. Well, I don't want to disappoint them. The truth is, in my heart, I do it to far less than my heroes. I do it to the everyday Joe Schmo. But here Stephen stands his ground. But what we'll see here is they secretly instigate or investigate in verse 11. And they pull up uh, of lies and, and ideas of what Stephen was doing in his service of blaspheming the law and blaspheming Moses and God and ultimately the temple. And what we'll see here in verse uh, 13 says that he never ceases to speak words against this holy, the holy place, the temple, and the law. We have heard him say, verse 14, that this Jesus 
of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's not because he had boyish good looks. There's something about Stephen that's different. And they take notice about that. They take notice of that. So what we'll see is the main accusation against Stephen is that in all of his teaching, in all of his servitude, in all of his life, he's blaspheming the very foundation of the temple and what it's built on. And what we'll see here in Stephen's speech is that he, he'll honor God more than ever. He'll highlight Moses more than ever. He will not blaspheme. He'll show all the more honor to these two men. He won't belittle the law. But what he does do is he does give them perspective on the temple. And we'll talk about that here a little bit. So the, uh, the big idea here is uh, the first point I have in this check your neck is you're just like your father. Now, we do some marriage counseling. Lindsay and I have been married for 14 years. And that's something we, we bring up of kind of, these are some no-nos you never say. One, you never introduce the D word, because that's not an option. Again, people throw that stuff around like, I'll get it. And they're like, that's a seed that does nothing but grow. So don't do that. And then the other thing, the other two things is never say you're just like your mother or you're just like your father and it, unless it has this elevated pitch at the end where it's just clearly a floral arrangement of words that you're building up both your mother-in-law and your wife simultaneously or your father-in-law and your husband simultaneously but usually when someone drops that phrase you're just like your mother or you're just like your father it's usually a negative connotation that you're chewing with your mouth full or you forget to pay the bills, or you know you, you just kind of chat and chat and chat, or whatever it might be, whatever stereotype you want to add to that. Uh, husbands, don't look at your wife at this point. Uh, no knee-grabbing wives to your husband. Don't do it. We don't want any stoning going on here today. Amen. But what Stephen will say in this text, as he, one, builds up Moses, builds up the law, highlights who God is and what God has done through these deliverer figures. Moses, Abraham, he, he highlights that image, but then he challenges them and says, you're just like your father. So what I want us to understand is that here these rulers are, are have been and are currently in Jesus rejecting God's deliverance. So for time's sake, he highlights here in the first section of his speech in verses uh, 7, 1 uh, through 8, he highlights Abraham. And he highlights that Abraham was called in Mesopotamia, which is in Egypt and around that area. Not in Jerusalem. Not right here where they've hunkered down and have focused so intently on building up the treasury of the temple, building up the security of their positions, just building up that God only resides here in Jerusalem. And if you're outside of Jerusalem or you're not with us, then God's not with you, right? We see that over and over again, even in Jesus' ministry. So Stephen intently says from the jump, God's call didn't even start here. God met us first in Egypt. It's bigger than this. It's bigger than what you've set up. So these are, these are, these are intentional jabs. These are fighting words but at the same time, honoring the very law 
that was not given yet by Abraham, uh, hadn't re been received yet by, by Moses, but that God was at work prior to the law, prior to Jerusalem being set up, prior to these temples being built by Solomon and later Herod. God is bigger than all of this. And he had a deliverer in Abraham, in this new descendant, in these new generations, that you rejected. That's, for, that's the first idea. He moves on to this covenant in verse, uh, verse 8, that he gave Abraham this covenant of circumcision, the physical trait of being set apart for God. But we also know as the prophets continue this idea of circumcision, that it's not solely a physical thing. It is a circumcision of heart, eyes, and ears. And that's more pertinent here. This isn't so much they rejected circumcision. No, they embraced it whole long, full, full, full stride. However, what's being dealt with is the need for their heart, their ears, and their eyes to be circumcised. To be cut, to not, to not be have this calloused or crust cover your heart, ears, and eyes. Are you with me? So that's the first one if you read this. Abraham, bigger than what you imagine. It's, it's beyond the borders in which you think God is in. And then he moves on to verse 9, and it reads, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And the story of, of Genesis chapter 50, as it concludes there, that Joseph, the youngest of, of the twelve sons, is, is, is sold into, into slavery by his brothers, rejected by Israel. He's there, it can become second in command, forgotten over and over and over again. And then Joseph, in that moment, comes out to his brothers, which kind of represent the tribes of Israel, and say, what, what you intended for harm, God has made good, has set up for your deliverance. And it was a physical deliverance of famine from death. Stephen is mentioning another deliverer in their time that was rejected. So he's building this up that God is always sending us deliverers. People who are going to call us out, expose and interrupt us so that we can embrace real freedom, real life, real joy, real salvation. So while they claim Stephen's not about the law, he's actually giving them a nice exposition, a nice, honestly, a master's course of the narrative of God. And I can imagine them saying, whoa, these accusations came flying to this guy that he didn't like Moses, didn't like the law, doesn't kind of rejects everything we do. This guy's all about those things. So what are they talking about? What, what are they mentioning him? So the story goes on and on about how Joseph does... Uh, summoned by Jacob. He's there before him in verse 15 and again saves Israel from this famine. That promise drew near. That promise was granted to, to Abraham. The multitude of, of God's descendants increased. Moses in verse 20. We're moving on. You with me? You following? At this time, now another deliverer. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. That just means he's Favor, favored. You are all beautiful, but it, it referenced favored here. And again, I'll, I'll go to my brother Ben Hutchins. Both beautiful and highly favored. Ben and I are on staff together. He's my, my little brother. I don't get to see him up here. He's preaching the word down in the NRV, so 
Just get to get to gush on him. He was brought up for three months in the father's house, and when he was exposed or left outside to die, literally, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. This we all know from, you know, a Disney movie here or there. Uh, but this actually is one of the four or five occasions of Moses' life that could be interpreted negatively or positively. And it was a real litmus test as to where you stood on Moses by how you saw this story. Was that a murder or an avenging of wrong? So when Stephen chooses his words intently here, saying he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian, that again is now ringing in the ears of the Sanhedrin. This guy's a fan of our boy. This guy's a fan of Moses. He sees what some people clamor about as a negative thing about our boy as an avengement of God with him. And how you see all that doesn't really matter. But the point is, Stephen is saying, Moses, I'm with him. He's a deliverer. I'm with that guy. And now they're realizing all the more, what is this guy here before us? Why? He's, he's speaking our language. Verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them, and they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, in the wilderness on Mount Sinai, in the flame of a fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. At that point, Moses has an interaction with God, but catch those verses a little bit earlier. Who made you a judge and arbiter over us? Another rejection statement of a deliverer. Are you following? So we got Abraham, we've got Joseph, and we've got Moses. And Stephen is just stacking up the narrative, saying every time God sends someone to you to give you all the good stuff, you say, who do you think you are? And you reject them. And we don't have time to go through all the prophets, but he'll mention that too. So time and time and time again, Stephen's saying, God is working. He's bigger than you can, uh, you can imagine. He's here, he's present, he's doing great things, and every time he tries to get your attention, every time, to the title, he tries to get you to check your neck, you reject him. You reject him over and over and over again. He honors Moses, he honors the law, he honors who God is more than we can ever ever really imagine as he, he breaks all this down in, in beautiful quotations of the Old Testament. But he has a little something something to say about the temple. But before we get into that, I do want to massage our hearts a little bit about how big our God is. And what Stephen's ultimately saying to, to, the, to the rulers here as well is that God is, God is active. 
and he's big, and he's been doing fantastic things, and it's bigger than this little temple that you're all huddled in. And Herod's temple, which is the one that's present at this point, is way bigger than the one Solomon built, by the way. So even then, it's small. You know that, I don't know what the movie's called, but it's like, what's this temple? Is this a temple for ants? It's, that's kind of what God is looking like. It, yeah, it's a temple, but I don't live there. It's bigger. Is this a temple for ants? What is this? But to kind of massage our hearts a little bit here, as Stephen was trying to do for them to look beyond what they're trying to build up, what they've tried to build in their own power, their own prestige, their own status. I want us to understand that uh, if I had a slide, I'd show you, but we have it in real life. You know, the sky, the sunrise this morning. Uh, the sunrise was beautiful. And Sol or Stephen here is trying to point out how big our God is to them so that they can eventually be humbled and check their necks. For the sunrise as it crested over our rotating earth this morning, the moment you could actually see the rays of sun or feel them on your skin, it actually happened 8 minutes and 20 seconds prior to you seeing it. Because that's how long it took for the sun, sun's rays to hit you, for you to see it. So even as you're feeling it and maybe complaining that this sermon's getting long already and I only have one point so far and you know there's at least three, maybe two, if you're lucky. And you're like, man, it's hot out here. Hope this guy doesn't go for another 15, 20 minutes. Maybe 10. That ray that you're feeling started eight minutes and 20 seconds ago it's over anybody know 93 million miles away that was a nerd trap and nobody fell for it yeah there you go but in one second in one second light travels at or light travels at 1086 miles an hour in one second light can travel around the equator seven times i think that's seven so seven times in one second so for sun to get from the sun to get here, it takes eight minutes and twenty seconds. At one thousand eight hundred sixty-eighty-six miles per hour, that's crazy. That's how big. That's just the sun. If we were to reduce that ninety-three miles to one sheet of paper, I didn't come up with this by the way. If you're like, wow, John's really smart, I, I read this. <laughs> Even this illustration, this analogy, I'm going to break down for you here. If we reduce that ninety-three miles, ninety-three million miles. <laughs> to one sheet of paper on your notebook or one sheet of paper in your Bible. If you added that, if you stack that up, it would be the book of Genesis in your Bible. That's how big our solar system is. If one page, the thinness of that page was 93 million miles, stack all those up, about the, the size of Genesis in your Bible, that's the size of our whole solar system. And this is the God who they're trying to confine in this little temple. Right? The next star in our solar system is Alpha Centurion. I didn't know that, but I looked it up. And this is how high the stack would be of papers if to the next nearest star. It would be 70 feet high of paper. That's just to our next star. And in our galaxy, it's estimated that there are 100 billion stars. That's just our galaxy. That's just the Milky Way. And if you're nerdy, you know there's more than our galaxy. It's huge. That's the point. Scientists estimate that there are num the same amount of uh, grains of sand on the seashore is the same amount of stars in the sky. And that number is 100 billion times 100 billion. So hopefully you're a little gobsmacked at this point. 
But all I'm trying to say here is God doesn't live in that little temple. Bam! There you go. He's bigger than all this. But you got to think, oh, yeah, we know that, John, for sure. God's everywhere. Yeah, we know that. But to the people Stephen's talking about, they really did believe, like, this is where God resides. If I'm going to connect and see God, and if anyone's going to connect and see God, not only do they have to come here, but they've got to come through me. That's the kind of arrogance and small-mindedness. But again, the heart of all that is to build up status and power and strength and build the treasury and you name it. And Stephen does a masterful job, as I've said a few times, honoring Moses, honoring the law, and highlighting who God is. But he's not afraid to give them perspective on the temple. And that's what he does in this text. These are stones slapped together by the hands of men. And in turn, we as people are just creations. Not just, but we are the pinnacle of his creation made by our amazing God. And who are we that this God who made the universe who did all of that, keeps having mercy on you and, I, you and I. Keeps sending deliverers to intervene for us over and over and over again. And Stephen at this point says, I'm on trial before my heroes because he did it again. He sent another deliverer. He did it in the most beautiful, spectacular, humble, loving, and magnificent of all ways. But you're not listen you're not listening verse 51 Stephen starts his second point which I am too now are you stiff necked check your neck you just like your dad are you stiff necked it might say this this uh, in, in your text, uh, stubborn. There's lots of synonyms for stiff-necked, dogged, you know, dog mentality. Like, Ugh. if you ever try to pull a dog, it doesn't want to go. We have a couple, I thought about a couple examples in Logan and, and Roman. Roman would be a little bit easier, but Logan's a big dog. But anyway, Stephen starts off this point and probably would have gotten a little bit longer if he didn't start that way. But he called him out. You're stiff-necked. Your hearts, and he goes on, let me get the text there. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Those are fighting words. Like, that's so awesome. What a sermon. What a closing. I'm not going to do that today to us. But are you stiff-necked? You know, what a slam. You know, if you want to inspire a teenage boy to uh, study the Bible, we often go to David and Goliath. And the trash talk that God allows in that text is beautiful. And I think boys love it. Maybe some girls too. When, Goliath, when David comes out to Goliath, this behemoth of a man, he said, and Goliath says to him, what are you coming at me with sticks like I'm a, like I'm a dog? And David says, ah, oh, shut up, you uncircumcised Philistine. Like, oh, dang, David, you went there? <laughs> yeah, he went there. And that would have been a, a, just a slam on, on Goliath. Like, you uncircumcised fellow. 
And those are fighting words. But we know that it's beyond just the physical trait. But here, Stephen doubles down on that. It's eyes and ears. You don't do what you say. You don't hold to the law. And you reject the righteous one. Which those words, capital R, capital O in your text, those are also highlighted words for a reason. Because that just smacks of Daniel chapter 7 in the day of days. It, it smacks of this righteous one that's going to come. Not anything you can achieve by upholding the law, but you need the righteous one to make you righteous. That's all of us. That's our Jesus. And any, as he says that, it says they gnashed their teeth at him. Like these are fighting words. You're saying that that guy, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel 7? Stephen's doubling down on all this. Wow. What a guy. Fifth, Isaiah 53 is uh, where you can see the righteous one if you want to write that down. Um, the truth is, we know that we are stiff-necked people. And without our Jesus, we have no chance. Without our deliverer, we've got no shot. There's no way for you to do discipleship well enough. There's no way to lean on your spiritual disciplines to Amen. be right before him. There's no way to do enough of disciplely things. There's no love you can flow out of you enough to make you righteous. We have both the crime and the penalty due to us. But God takes that in Jesus through all of us or through his sacrifice to make us righteous. This is a wake-up call for them, but it's meant to be a wake-up call for me and you. That wake-up call is required to first start off with how we did, bringing the magnificence that God is and what he's doing to bring himself to them. But we know that God is in the business of disrupting their lives, and he's in the business of disrupting our lives so that our eyes can be opened, our hearts can be circumcised, our ears can be can be cleaned and know the deliverer, to know the peace, to know the joy, to know his love, to know his atonement, and the community, and the alignment that we get through, through Jesus with the creator of all the universe. Without the disruption, we've got no chance. Instead of hearing that interruption, they're just like their dads. The truth is, it's hard to recognize that we're stiff-necked. It's hard. It might be helpful in the middle of a conversation if you want to point out my pride or arrogance to bring a little bit of a, a prop. And I thought it might be appropriate with all the dressing up. I, I couldn't find a neck brace. And I didn't want to bring a, a noose. So anyway, if you could bring something of a neck brace when you want to talk to me about being stiff-necked so that I know exactly what you're trying to say so that I can be helped. Because I naturally have all types of excuses as to why I do what I do. I'll excuse it away. But if you could just show me, hey, you know what? I got the neck brace, John, because I want to talk to you about something. I'm like, okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. No one really likes calling each other's out. There might be a couple of you that just love confrontation. I don't know. I'm not that guy. And many of us aren't. And it takes so much for us to come up to our brothers and sisters and share, hey, man, I need to talk to you about something. Yeah. I see a pattern. I, I see something in your marriage. I overheard, you know, God gave me the, 
the, the opportunity to kind of be a, a faithful witness. I was nearby. I wasn't necessarily directly involved, but I saw something. Spirit put on my heart, and I want to bring that to your attention. Not to condemn you, not to judge you, not to elevate me, but just so that we can be more like Christ, more like our Jesus. And those are difficult conversations. You don't need to raise your hand if you love having those, but if you do, amen. I've had to learn to care more about them than how I'm received, and I still battle with that all the time. So if I come up to you after church because you're sleeping, I'm going to, you know, just be ready. Psalm 36 tells us about our hearts. It says we flatter ourselves too much to hate or detect our own sin. So if you need to talk to me, bring that scripture too. So that I can know what's going on in here. There are many ways that we resist the Holy Spirit with a stubborn, proud, stiff neck. You know, someone does need to disrupt you. Someone has the courage to intervene, loves you enough to talk to you in a way that maybe we've sinned or disregarded or thoughtlessly did something. You know, oftentimes I resist it by excuse making or making it about how they said it versus what they're saying. Often I have uh, levels of, of, uh, of listening that if you're older in the faith, if you're a couple life stages ahead of me, or if you've got older kids, I'll be more inclined to listen to you. But God forbid a campus student who has no kids or hasn't even sniffed a diaper wants to talk to me about... <laughs> I find that our campus students and our teens have some of the most insightful things to say about my parenting. When we've had babysitters come over and help our kids, they see things. They're gentle, they're humble. I've been helped so much by them. But I wish I could look at them right now and say, thank you, with a completely pure heart. Because in those moments, I'm like, oh, you don't have sweet nothings to tell, tell me about my kids. Anyway, it's been very gracious. I appreciate them. But we do that, don't we? If we don't like them or if they've challenged us, we kind of grit and bear and say, oh, thanks so much, sister. But in your mind, you say, whatever. And then there's distance and bitterness. You don't talk to each other in fellowship or you avoid each other because you know what? God forbid they follow up with you. You know, it's time for us to say, listen up and let the Holy Spirit interrupt us. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't just interrupt us to call us out. It interrupts us to prompt us to live out lordship to Jesus. You know, I love what Jenny came up here and shared. I was I couldn't type fast enough. My Apple pen failed me. I was like, this is gold. You know, it's the insight that God has given her through, through the Holy Spirit to say, you know what? I only said yes because I didn't want to say no. Like that type of maturity to see your heart and to let God actually see that in you is, is beautiful. You know, we're all up. Hopefully everyone was like, yup. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that not only you saw that, but then you went after studying out God's word via that book. To, to grow in that. Amen. That book I've read multiple times. It's one of those annual reads for obvious reasons. <laughs> but I appreciate you coming up here, especially as a young young disciple in the campus ministry, because it's been very easy to kind of say, hey, this is what we all need to do, and keep it general, and keep it about the cross, which is awesome, but not actually expose your character, and listen to the Spirit, and be vulnerable. I appreciate that. Amen. It's very easy not to. Yeah. But he doesn't just do that. But he does call us to live like Jesus. We've all experienced promptings to be more like Christ, yes? And Stephen was doing that in his ministry of food distribution, serving tables, and then all of a sudden, boom, 
he's called into trial to preach or to share about what he's doing. And he goes from service to now being a force for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about us? Have you had the Holy Spirit prompting you? Do you believe there's more that he wants to do with your life? He doesn't necessarily want to make you busier. He wants to make you more like Christ. You know, some of us have succumbed to quiet desperation. Some of us have become experts at defining boundaries to discipleship. Like, you know, no, 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 no. I have this hedge. Not too much opportunity to be like Jesus at my pace. Thank you, Ben and Melina. I love how you're pouring yourselves up. It's inspiring. But this is my level of pouring. I only bring a teacup to the pitcher, pitcher table. You know, in Roanoke, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, I got... I think some of us have succumbed to kid-centric living, meaning our lives are all about our kids. And if our kid's schedule frees me up, then I'm ready. But we know how that goes. And I lump myself in that, that it never frees up. But are you living a kid-centric life? Are you worried about your health, a health-centric life? Are you worried about your, your career, if it's you're more stacked up in what what's next in the in your future rather than what does God want to do right now I'm not saying no plan for the future don't give your kids fun activities eat whatever you want I'm not saying that I'm just saying that lordship the spirit calls us to that too and are we listening to those things you know I talking about kid centric I don't know if it was per se but I, I my son had a soccer game and I decided to go probably a good idea <laughs> I went but the Hoopers came with us and, and Will Clement came and we watched Cameron uh, play in his travel soccer league and while we're standing there, you know, yelling at kids. No, we weren't. <laughs> while we were standing there cheering on our kids, you know, Doug, Doug Cooper came up to me. He's like, hey, man, can I just, I need to talk to you about something. And in my heart, I was like, hey, man, we're here for soccer game. <laughs> but he had, the Holy Spirit put something on his heart. So, hey, here's my brother. Let's talk about it. And in my mind, a minister, I got the Rolodex of things that it could be. And he said something. I wasn't expecting. He'd say, you know what? I feel like I'm lukewarm spiritually. I feel like my marriage, in our marriage, we're lukewarm. I feel like I need some direction. And I was just like, whoa. Amen. When's the last time I said I was lukewarm? Yeah. I've thought you've been lukewarm, but not me, but I have. And I appreciated Doug saying, you know what? God exposed me to whatever degree I'm going to talk about it. Amen. And maybe that's true for us. And it's true that God has set up something way more than we could ever ask for or imagine. To be involved in something so much more than what we can define here in our world. The Holy Spirit's calling us to check our necks. To make sure that we're not like our ancestors. We're no greater than them. We, fall, we succumb to the same things they did. We're no better than the Sanhedrin. We crucified our Lord too, didn't we? But we have an opportunity. This sermon is in here as another opportunity to be delivered from some less lesser life than what Christ has come to bring you and to bring me. So I've got to realize, whoa, you know, look, whoa, look what I've got on. I've got a neck brace on. I got a stiff neck. I need to be resist I've been realizing I've been resisting the Holy Spirit. I was always meant to be significant. 
not insignificant in my community. I'm not supposed to just go, you know, punch in, punch out. I'm not supposed to just check the box for school. I'm not supposed to just go to high school and leave a little bit smarter. God forbid that's, that's all that we become. We're not here just to generate great lives for our kids and then send them off to college and then... <laughs> I did it! Yes, it's great, beautiful, do that, but it's more. But it's not easy. It's not easy to be a spur and it's not easy to get a spur, but we all need one. It's time to take a, a, an opportunity to say, maybe I need a life-giving rebuke. Maybe I need to help someone that's on the brink of living a lesser life and have a great conversation. Not be a hammer looking for nails in the fellowship, but someone who wants to give life-giving words to a friend, to a brother, to a sister. Some of us that are gathered here, you know, we're studying the Bible. You're trying to figure out if you want to become a disciple, trying to figure out what the truth is. And maybe you're dabbling. Maybe you're dragging your feet. Maybe you're trifling with it. And you're not taking it seriously. What is it the Holy Spirit's trying to do to you? To plead for you to surrender so you can really know the beautiful and reckless abandon of living for God. And to live for something that can't be shaken. Rather than living for something that's destined to crumble. God is begging us in this story. And we have Stephen who's incredible. But the point of this story isn't to say, be like Stephen. Be able to stand your ground. Know your Old Testament so stinking well that you're able to put down all your, all your accusers. This is showing us that God can use you to point to the deliverer as well. And that's all Stephen did. Stephen was just like Jesus. Same spot as Jesus, accused just like Jesus. And he was able to be like Jesus in this moment, not because he's so great, but because he knew God so well. It's not enough for us to walk away saying, okay, I'm going to be like Jesus. That's going to crush you. That will only take you as deep as your spiritual disciplines. But the version of Christianity that God is calling us here is to see our Jesus, to know him so in intimately and deeply that it changes you from the inside out so that you're ready to live a life to whatever degree God calls that to look like. Amen? So Stephen wasn't picked for this great honor to be the first martyr because he was such a stand-up dude or so gritty and had a gutted-out personality. He was the man because he was impacted by the deep love of Jesus. Amen. He was intensely secure, knowing that there was nothing he had to perform to gain some type of standing. He already had it in Jesus. In conclusion, I want to draw to this idea of what we saw Jesus do when Stephen looked up and saw God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Here he is before a judgment seat of the religious rulers, but what he was able to do is look up and see the real judgment seat, the real throne room, the real deal. And when he looked up and saw that, he saw Jesus standing. Now in our Western mind, we think, oh, is Jesus giving Stephen a standing O? Like, way to go. Well, that's nice and not necessarily wrong. But in Eastern, in Eastern court, when someone stands up, it is to, to support you. It is to support and actually intercede for that person. So when Stephen looked up and saw Jesus standing, Jesus is communicating, I'm interceding for you right now. I am talking to my dad on your behalf, saying, 
That's my boy. That's Steven. I know him. Go get him. You got this. I'm with you. It's all going to end well. That's my man. And that's what Steven sees. He sees a father that's just gushing over his son. Interceding. Standing firm. So there's no surprise while Stephen bows out so gracefully here. While he's able to actually forgive the very people that are stoning him. Where he's actually able to be like Jesus in that moment. Why? Because he sees his father and secure in him. Knows Jesus so deeply that all this stuff converging at once. He's able to say, you know what? Not only is Jesus interceding for me. Jesus, I want you to intercede for my murderers. Talk about a deep understanding, a desire to see everyone reconciled. That comes from knowing who Jesus is. I want us to live our lives with the throne room of God visible. I want us to live our lives knowing that there's a great cloud of witnesses, that we are in the presence of a God who's not looking down at you saying, Stop doing that, David. Oh, you screwed up. You need to, don't do that again. It's a God that's like, I'm, I'm standing up for you, literally. I'm interceding for you. I'm wanting to disrupt you so that you can know the beauty of all that God is. I want you to have this type of security. That's our throne room now. That's our judgment seat. We can go to that throne of grace with confidence, Hebrews says. Hebrews 7 says, that Jesus is living to make intercession for us every day. Jesus doesn't do it just for Stephen. He stands for you. He's doing it for you. That's why he lived every day perfectly so that he could intercede for us. Elijah prayed, O oh Lord, open their eyes so that they may see. We have this in Scripture so that our eyes can be flung wide open to the realities of who God is, what his gospel brings to the world. And that Jesus, who we can know deeply so that we can live amazing lives, not on our own strength, but we can actually bring Jesus, be delivered, and, and help others be delivered. Practically, send you out. Ask someone, do I have a neck brace on? Is my, nef, my neck is my neck so stiff? Ask someone about your stiff neckedness. <laughs> What do you see? What have you noticed? And it might not be blatant sin, but some of us are not as excited about the gospel as we used to be. Some of us are, is wait, are waiting for this pandemic to blow over before we can be like Jesus again. I'm not saying because you're not here. I'm grateful you're on Facebook, but I'm talking about in your heart. Ask, how's my parenting? What do you see in my marriage? What do you know about me? What, what do you see? Anything. Just be, give that invitation. And if you already know, be open about it. I know I've seen this. Like Jenny, I, I don't want to puff her up. Amen, sis. But it's what I've seen. What do you see? And be open to more. Something I do all the time is like, hey, bro, can I just be open with you? And then I share something and they're like, yeah, you know what? And they start expounding. They start bringing up, I'm like, I, I was open. <laughs> I wasn't open to more but be open to more sometimes we need to like hey let me get the ball rolling but what else do you see and then practically 
spend time looking at the throne room of God. Reading your Bible, not just to read it, but reading it in the presence of the throne room of God. Going out on prayer walks in the throne room of God. Going out and singing songs, worshiping your God, knowing that the throne room is open. And there is God and Jesus saying, that's my girl. That's my boy. Going to work, knowing that you have such such an air cover that's unimaginable. You think F-18s are cool. You have God flying over. That works better in Virginia Beach when they're literally flying over. But that's whatever spiritual discipline, take it with a sense of what Stephen could look up and see. Say, that's my reality. That's my God. That's my Jesus. And let the love of Christ let the confidence of Christ well up in us so that we can be men and women of confidence. Go out and help people. Reconcile people at all costs. Do whatever it takes. But it starts there. It starts there. Let's check our necks. We don't want to be just like our ancestors. They had all types of deliverers, and they said no to every single one of them, the most being Jesus. Let that not be the case for us. Check our necks. We're not like our dad, but we can be like Jesus because we love him intimately, we spend time with him deeply, and we listen to his spirit no matter how disruptive it can be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Let's stand for one final song, and then we'll have some trunk or treating.